Welcome to the podcast of Grace and Peace Church. These are the teachings from our Sunday gatherings. We are supported by listeners like you who find value in the mission of discipleship. If you'd like to give financially, check out our website, our Instagram, or our Facebook for the giving tab. And thank you for partnering with us and keeping the mission alive. Grace and peace to you. So today, the Christian church around the world is directed to consider peace. We're meant to look at the source material related to peace, meditate on the theme. So we've lit the candle. We've spoken the theme into this space. And maybe, maybe you've already felt weight lifted off your shoulders or heard comfort whispered to your spirit. Good. This is the season for it. During Advent, we're meant to remember the birth of the Christ child, and we look forward to Christ coming again. So the season began last week with hope, and now it's moving steadily through peace to joy and love and straight to Christmas. And if we're practiced in the stuff of the season, we know the drill. So hopefully, we're ready for God's peace today and everything that that entails. Now, it might surprise you to learn that Jesus said very little about peace in the express sense. It's probably more accurate to say that the gospel writers recorded very few instances where Jesus spoke the word peace outside of a greeting. I was surprised by that. And maybe it's because I associate peace and Jesus so closely that the words are sort of interchangeable in my head. And I expected more concrete evidence of that, but no, it's not in the text. So today we are going to look at examples of when and how the term peace was used in Scripture and what we can focus on to expand our understanding of the biblical concept of the word so that we can fully participate in peace as Christ's gift to us and to the world. So first, uh, this is going to be an early instance of the term peace in the Old Testament. It'll be Psalm 3737, written by David, king of Israel. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. And here's another. It's Proverbs uh, 12.20, written by Solomon, David's son. Deceit is in the hearts of those who plot evil, but those who promote peace have have joy. Now, both these verses predate Jesus, but they're informative and suggest how early God-fearing people related to the word. So in terms of the grammar here, peace is a noun. It's an idea, like a concept, a quality. But let me ask... What part of speech gives life to the idea of peace in each of these verses? Back to looking for English majors. Anybody get it? The The verbs. Thank you. Yeah, the verbs, specifically seek and promote. So in the case of David's sermon, the king was instructing the nation about how they should respond when wicked people around them are enjoying gains in this life. And Solomon's words were like his dad's. So David's instruction to the people was not to join forces with evil powers and share their spoils, but to look for the ones among the people who were good and blameless. Spot them, suggested David. Name them and imitate them. 
In a chaotic world that rewarded injustice, David told the people of faith to actively seek peace. Now, I've used the next image several times. So for the podcast, it's a black and white photo of Mr. Rogers with a quote imposed to the side which reads, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And to me, that sounds like David's advice. Mr. Rogers' mom listened to her son's fearful response to the news of the day and said, look for the helpers. The ones who actively stand out against chaos, wrongdoing, and fearsome things. To me, that sounds like seeking out peacemakers. And I think that's step one to a faithful journey towards God's peace. Seek peace. Recognize it. Know when you see it. And pay attention to it. Recently, I read an excerpt from a book that said, you become what you perceive most attentively. So King David and Mr. Rogers' mom recommended paying attention to the active purveyors of peace. That's just good advice. We could all do that. Now, another early use of the term peace in the Old Testament comes from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now here again, peace is a noun, but it's more than a concept this time. In this case, peace is wrapped up in the person of Christ, who was prophesied to enter the world wonderfully, mightily, divinely. Isaiah was announcing the coming presence of peace in its fullness, peace incarnate, living peace, the ultimate helper, the holy peacemaker, Jesus. So Isaiah said to the nation, peace is coming. And then at the birth of Christ, the heavens confirmed its arrival. This is from Luke chapter 2. At once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. With the birth of Jesus, peace was physically present on earth. But understand this, the earth was not at peace, but peace had become available, and shalom was about to be launched like a pyramid scheme. So hold that thought, and I'll come back to it. So let's look at a few places in Scripture where Jesus did preach peace explicitly. This is from Matthew 10, and it does not sound peaceful. So I'm going to deal with this first. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will become members of one's own household. Try to wrap your head around that. The Prince of Peace who was heralded by the heavens as peace on earth, and who was sung over by the prophet Zechariah, who said that Jesus would give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And there he seems in Matthew to say no to all that. But hang on, because it's a yes and a no, and we need context to interpret the quote. 
in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was sending out his disciples to preach the gospel, to shine light into darkness and to speak peace into chaos. His disciples, though, may have alluded to the possibility that they were about to take part in some profitable enterprise through which they might enjoy a rise in status through peace brought about through conquest and the imposition of power. That was the big no. No. Verses 34 to 36 were spoken by Jesus as a corrective. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, would not be operating according to the world's ways and means. No. He flipped the script, as he often did, to make a point. Jesus repurposed the language of the world and undid the former notion of dominance. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Jesus' metaphorical sword, the one he was handing to his disciples, would not accompany violence. Instead, his sword was his message, his words spoken generously with healing power and love. It was the message his disciples were sent out to deliver. In the days of Christ, in the name of Christ, peace would not come at the terrible historical price of earthly force. Instead, God's peace, shalom, would be an offer of presence an invitation to enter into the way of Christ and rest there and abide in him. And that truth would cut through the chaos of this world like a sword, and it would divide people for millennia. Now back to this sort of pyramid scheme. The next use of peace that I want to point out comes from John, and it was recorded in the context of the Last Supper where Jesus is comforting his disciples after having prophesied his impending capture and his death. Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. It's important to remember that Christ and peace, shalom, are bound up together. God's peace is found in Christ. Christ ushers in peace. He exudes peace, and he can give his particular peace as something practical, tangible, even shareable. If we look at those surrounding verses, obedience towards Christ seems to insist on that last quality, the capacity of Christ followers to share peace. But let's look at one more passage to support that idea. And this next one's from Matthew 5, and it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace lovers, not the peaceful. Jesus was speaking about people who actively, intentionally apply peace, those who operate in the world in ways that mitigate chaos, in the same way that 
David called on the nation to seek peace. And Solomon said, promote peace. Jesus taught his followers to take into themselves the spirit of peace that he would give to all those who confess their faith in him and obey him and use that conferred capacity to make more peace. And that's step two, I think. Make peace. Step one was seek peace. Step two is make more. So now in this divine scheme, peace would come from Christ and then be distributed to the earliest, nearest core of followers. And in turn, they would go into the world, imitate Christ, live by his spirit, and as they would go on their way, humbly and gently refer people directly to the source of shalom so that they too might experience peace, choose peace, be initiated into the peace, and then go out and make more peace, always expanding the base, ultimately incorporating the whole world. The whole world. And that's an important point about God's peace. Jesus promised to pour out his spirit on all believers And when he did, that was a catalyst for change among the disciples. One key moment concerning such a change in Peter was recorded in Acts. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And similarly, the Apostle Paul had this realization. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. Both those comments were countercultural in their time. But Jesus had done a new thing in the world, and the early leaders had to come to terms with Jesus' level of inclusivity and egalitarianism. Jesus was wildly hospitable. He elevated everyone. And the whole world was going to be invited into Christ without exception or pre-qualification. And remember, the mission of Christ was about to be passed down and carried out through the disciples, and it was goal-oriented toward the whole world. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that means that Christ's church could not and cannot be prejudiced. Peter and Paul had to earn that, learn that early lesson. And we'll probably all have to grapple with our own natures if we're going to be peacemakers in our time. So let's consider that. How can we consistently make peace in a hostile world that we live in and among people groups that we may have been taught or formed to oppose? I suggest this. Let's impose Shadow Proclamation Protocols 15, P, and 6. Now, (laughs) yes. For the podcast, we're looking at an image of David Tennant. He's the 14th doctor in the Doctor Who series. And Shadow Proclamation Protocols 15 P and 6 state the following. Under my jurisdiction, there will be no violence. And that is not scripture. But I will argue that it is biblical in tone. Now, a couple years ago, I was in a Bible study with our lovely Andy. Uh, A few of us were at Angelo's eating french fries. I actually think Jackson was there, too. Uh, We were just talking about how we would live out our faith, and Andy said something that I have thought about at least a hundred times since. He said... what I say. He's like, what? What? It changed my life, Andy. He said, 
I ask, what's the most loving thing to do? Let me put those two ideas together. Do no violence. Do the most loving thing. And I think that's a short course in peacemaking. But what does it look like in practice? I don't know what it looks like for you because your role in the body of Christ is unique. But I'm going to show you a little bit about what it looks like for me and hope that it helps you to recall the ways that you operate in the places that you go. Maybe we can all chat about those things over lunch on another day. So uh, next up is a picture of the trunk of my car that I took last Sunday. It is a mess. Uh, but it's a pretty fair snapshot of my journey to do no violence and do the most loving thing in the places that I'm compelled to go. So most of that stuff is roller derby gear. And how does that happen without violence, you may ask, and with love? Uh, for one thing, I'm just not very good at it. Um, but another, I don't play with the intention to injure anyone. Uh, but more than that, over the last eight years, I've just settled into a role in my league that includes welcoming and helping to train new skaters and actually mediating player conflict. So it's just a small role that I can play in maintaining a safe space and league harmony and skater welfare in uh, what could be a rough atmosphere. Uh, the blue stick, that's a broom. Uh, that's in my trunk because I'm part of a nonprofit that cleans skate parks. And that's a really small thing too, but like, I think the environment is a matter of biblical stewardship. That weighs on my heart. I think clean water matters. I think the climate matters. And for me, picking up trash wherever I skate is just a tiny way to push back against the violent exploitation of resources that were gifted to humanity in creation. Uh, the green book with a ladybug on it, that's my Bible. Uh, Jesus is the filter that I run my trunk stuff through. The white rectangles in the back are signs. The one on the bottom says peace and ceasefire. We all know the world is experiencing war on multiple fronts. And the human, spiritual, and mental costs are untenable. Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Palestine, Iran, Yemen maybe. I think war should offend us. And I think it should compel us to cry out. And I think that, so I have to respond to that outwardly. A couple weeks ago after church, I gathered with skaters in San Diego for what was called a rollout for peace. And the singular watchword of the event was peace, and the message was clarified in advance. Call for a ceasefire, protect Palestinian and Jewish lives, stop genocide, end wars. That's it. No enemies, no prejudice, no side-taking, just unity against conflict and armaments. For me, peacemaking in the face of egregious and abject violence can mean rallying with affected strangers, calling for peace, standing with and for innocent, marginalized, and oppressed humans, and helping them cry out for justice. The other sign, uh, that was an invitation to a free Tai Chi class. 
That activity is just also about building community, creating access, providing a space for people to experience moments of personal peace in their day. We breathe together, we stretch a bit, we relax. It's just exercise. But it's also calming and methodical, even medicinal. And for me, taking time out to be peaceful makes peace giving possible. I also usually have a ball cap in the trunk too, but it's black so you wouldn't see it in that mess. It says practice kindness, and I wore it to kids camp this year, but I also wear it to pride events. I belong to a group called Free Mom Hugs. During public events that can be divisive and which are sometimes interrupted by hatred and attack, we just stand nearby and we offer hugs. Each hug is a small gesture to assure people that they are loved and valued. And that is just God's truth. And it's a life-saving message because sometimes those hugs stand between an individual and the violence of self-harm. Each hug is an opportunity to exchange peace and goodwill. And that's where I want to circle back to scripture and reorient us back to Advent and Christmas. Unto us a child is born, said Isaiah, and he is the Prince of Peace. Glory to God in the highest, declared the angels at the birth of Christ, and on earth peace and goodwill to all people. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my peace I give you. I don't know how you as individuals might be called on to obey the teachings of the Prince of Peace. But I trust that if you are a follower of Christ, his spirit is compelling you according to his ways to do no violence and do the most loving thing. So without knowing your specifics, I just urge you to act. I encourage you to use the rest of Advent and beyond to do your peacemaking bit in the body of Christ. Work with the stuff in your trunk. It won't be the same as my stuff. It shouldn't be. It doesn't need to be. All we need in common to promote peace is the spirit of Christ and the heart of Jesus. And then let's make a habit of talking about what that looks like for each of us. Let's be accountable for peace-seeking and peacemaking, for all the verbs, all the places, all the people, without favoritism, for the sake of the whole world. Peace be with you. Let's rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of each day 